Welcome to Agnes Scott College's podcast series. This series features a variety of topics and themes from different offices and departments of Agnes Scott College, all exploring our mission to think deeply, live honorably, and engage the social and intellectual challenges of our time. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Erin Bradley, the Linda Hubert Assistant Professor of Public Health at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. I'd like to welcome everyone to the second installment of our critical conversations about the COVID-19 pandemic. At Agnes Scott, our mission is to educate women to think deeply, live honorably, and engage the intellectual and social challenges of their times. Today, our conversation features three Agnes Scott alumni who will share their perspectives from the front lines regarding health equity during this pandemic. We have with us today, Dr. Dinah Conti, class of 1998, who is a pediatrician. Dr. Carrie Norris, class of 2002, who is chief of health policy and administration at the Fulton DeKalb Hospital Authority, as well as Rachel Wax, class of 2009, who is an epidemiologist with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs in Bedford, Massachusetts, as well as a volunteer epidemiologist with Boston Medical Response Corps. So let's get started. Preliminary data show racial ethnic disparities in mortality rates due to COVID-19. Anecdotal reports have also suggested that socioeconomic characteristics may increase individuals' risk for exposure, such as individuals who work at grocery stores or fast food workers without personal protective equipment. Dr. Conti, in your experience, have you observed differences in the severity of illness or in mortality by race or socioeconomic characteristics? Thank you. Um, first, in my job, I've learned to assume that everybody has COVID-19 unless they're proven otherwise. Uh, none of us is immune and none of us is, uh, is uh, uh, excluded. Uh, that being said, the risk of contracting the infection is strongly uh, affected by socioeconomic factors, as you, as you mentioned. Um, Looking at the severity of the illness, though, that is affected by multiple factors, including race and socioeconomic factors. Uh, hypertension, for instance, is more common in people of color, as is diabetes. In the medical community, what we're learning is that COVID-19 is a microvascular disease, meaning that there is disease in the small blood vessels, the very small ones, in the lungs, in the head, are in the brain, the, uh, in the heart, the kidneys, and all the other organs in the skin. And so if microvascular disease is part of the problem with COVID-19 or a large part of the problem, uh, if you already have a pre-existing condition like high blood pressure or diabetes, then you're already experiencing some microvascular disease because of the condition that you have. So, People with hypertension and diabetes, they're more likely to have microvascular disease. People of color are more likely to have hypertension and diabetes, and therefore the COVID-19 infection works kind of as a, a double whammy. Um, the, uh, the other things that are, you know, you mentioned with socioeconomic factors, 
you know, a lot of times I think when people like just in the general public or my colleagues, when we talk about socioeconomic factors that influence disease or contracting the infection, you know, there are factories, grocery stores, you mentioned fast food establishments, there is oftentimes no PPE or inadequate PPE in those facilities. The workspace is small. Uh, there's less opportunity to distance yourself from others. You don't get an opportunity to wash your hands. You may not have hand sanitizer and you can't wash your hands between customers. Um, you also can't drink enough fluids. If you're wearing a mask, that's one of the things I've been experiencing even for myself, is if you're wearing a mask, the more times you take it on and off, the more risk you have for disease. Well, then we're, we're not gonna keep ourselves healthy if we can't drink water and eat healthy foods. So people who work in a, 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 a more of a, a hand-to-mouth type of job where they don't have a lot of economic reserve, um, they're, they're set up for, for trouble with an infection like this just because of, uh, of, their, of their work factors and just kind of who they are. Um, the, uh, the other thing that I think is important to, to, that I'm seeing in my job and from my colleagues is uh, for people with lower socioeconomic uh, status, there are the jobs that you can get don't give you time off. So if you are sick, you can't take time off to go to work or take time off to go to the doctor, I mean, or to go to the ER. So you're potentially infecting your entire workplace. You've got a sick family member, you can't take time off to take your child to the doctor. So if you can't take time off, then you go after work in the middle of the night sometimes to go to the ER, and then you're infecting yourself or exposing yourself to infection just by that contact. So there's a, it, it's more than just uh, not being able to wear the right PPE. Thank you. So Rachel, in your opinion, what is the role of inequities during pandemic? Does it make them worse or does it simply expose them? So the simple answer is yes. Um, Focusing just on the United States, I think the very foundation of us as a nation was built and is rooted in racism and sexism and classism. Uh, what we're seeing today, I believe, is the natural outcome of those systems that we've built and upheld over generations. Uh, there are myriad inequalities and inequities that are being magnified, and they're all interrelated. Um, I think race and economics are the two biggest that we're seeing right now. Um, and I would say that they're truly endemic failures of us as a society. Um, who is an essential worker? Uh, doctors and nurses, yes. But we also have to keep society running. We have to be able to, to get food. We, we're getting our mail. We're doing all of these things. Um, and like you just said, a lot of these workers don't have paid time off. They don't have health insurance. They don't have sick leave. Um, so when they're exposed, they can't self-quarantine for the 14 days. Um, they need to work. They require that paycheck. Um, they need to feed their families. So does big corporation X step up and say, you know, you know, we're a family. We're all in this together. We want you to go home and we want you to rest and we want to see you back here when you're better. No, they don't because we're not 
all in this together. Um, and I think that's a really sad but important thing to remember. Um, so I would also say that like, and unfortunately, a lot of us are bodies. Um, and our working situation, we're just bodies. So if you get sick and if you need to go to the hospital and if you're in an ICU on a vet for three weeks, your corporation is going to say, okay, next body. They don't care about you as a human being and the family. And I think that's that's pretty much an endemic failure of our society. Um, I don't think it stops there though. Uh, as an entire nation, if the economy can crumble, if many, if not most Americans can't pay their rent after missing one paycheck, uh, I think it's painfully clear that the system was never meant for everyone, but only for a few. And that's an endemic failure of our society. Um, I think it doesn't stop there. Essential workers, workers without the PTO and paid sick time, they're disproportionately black and brown. They're being exposed to COVID at much higher rates because of their jobs. And why is that? And it's systemic racism. And we need to be able to talk about this in order to combat these issues. Um, the pandemic is perpetuating these inequities as we speak. If caregivers are essential workers, kids aren't being homeschooled and in homes where kids don't have reliable high-speed internet, and multiple devices for each child, they're not going to online schooling and they're falling behind. We can't, we're actively continuing to disadvantage predominantly black and brown children. Um, that's an endemic failure of society. And just I, the underlying epidemic of inequity, I think has been expanding and we can't tackle these issues without talking about overlaps and intersectionality. Absolutely, absolutely, great points. Um, Carrie, persistent disparities in underlying health conditions that increase vulnerability for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality are well documented. So similar to some of the things that have already been brought up. In 2003, the Institute of Medicine published their unequal treatment report, which highlighted healthcare engagement challenges based on race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic factors and made recommendations to address disparities. From a policy perspective, what actions, if any, have been or should be implemented to effectively address the social determinants of health and inequity that fuel these disparities? So basically, um, not a lot of policies have been implemented at this point. Uh, policy is the foundation of everything, of equalizing and creating equity for us. Um, in regards to education, housing, all of the social determinants of health, even in regards to access to care. And so seeing that these particular um, populations of black and brown folks um, have this elevated vulnerability to COVID-19, then we are seeing that states and even employers are trying to come up with policy. Is it fast enough? No. Is it just in time? We're hoping so. And when we look at these policies, the only one that I've seen thus far centers around OSHA. And so when folks report back to work, what are the expectations? What are the actual policies that are in place that protect the employee as well as any customers that come into a particular establishment? When we think about who has to go to work, 20%, only 20% of um, black and brown folks actually are able to remote work from home. So a great majority of folks um, 
basically in various states will be returning to work, unfortunately, but fortunately, because they need the money, but unfortunately it puts them at risk closer to the end of the week and the beginning of next week. A lot of people are going back. And so what policies are in place for employers? There is national policy around if people get sick, there's actual HR COVID policy of what's covered, how employers have to handle FMLA, how employers have to handle um, paying people who are out sick with COVID or who actually have to be quarantined for 14 days with COVID. Those are just in time. What we see that it's missing is actually policies around treatment, triage, access, testing, things of that nature. And because we were kind of caught off guard with this and didn't um, in, in certain circumstances, didn't take it seriously, then we didn't have measures and policy and preparedness in place. We have preparedness for other types of disasters that happen and things that happen in the United States, but we were completely caught off guard with this. And so hospitals are creating policies as they go with who to treat, when to treat, who to send home, who gets the test. Do you get a test when you come into the ER versus do you get a test based upon admission? And so we're seeing this differ, not from county to county or even from state to state, but actually health system to health system, public health system to public health system. And so it's very concerning. And I think this will be one of the actual um, things that we do more on a reactive instead of a proactive basis. We're, this is huge lessons learned across the board for us this year. You know, what's interesting, Carrie, is, um, you know, you mentioned we haven't really done much since 2003, since that uh, unequal treatment um, report, and I'm seeing that even now in 2020. Uh, you know, we have some states reporting the number of people of color who are sick with COVID-19, but we don't actually have any national data right now, and that's actually because the widespread lab testing does not collect information about race or socioeconomic status for individuals. So race and ethnicity are not listed when you're getting that test done. So we actually have, we can't collect that data. Um, why are we not collecting that data? Uh, so it's, it's just, you know, 17 years later, we're not doing a whole lot better, unfortunately. Yeah. And there are some measures that are in Healthy People 2020 that had aspirational goals for bridging the gap in regards to um, health inequities and health disparities. However, we're still not there yet. If we were there within the last 10 years, then we would not be facing a lot of what we're seeing today, which unfortunately I truly believe is going to, as Rachel said, compound the problem. That is very true. Um, many of us have been reading and hearing stories about people um, during this pandemic. Is there a story in particular that speaks to the inequity surrounding this pandemic that stands out for you and, and why? Um, I'll, I'll go first then. Um, there's, I've not experienced it personally, but my colleagues have and around, uh, around the world, this is happening too, but in the US, that uh, you've heard about hospitals having to decide which patients are gonna get a ventilator or which patients are gonna get medication because there's not enough to go around. Um, and this is actually happening. 
um, physicians are making these types of decisions based on the information they have at the time. So who's the healthiest? Who's got the best chance of surviving? Who's gonna get better with less support versus the one who's gonna need a lot more support? If we were to decide based on a person who has obesity, asthma, and high blood pressure, that they should, you know, are they going to get treatment over a healthy person with no medical problems? You might say give the treatment to the healthy person. Um, the, a computer could do that too. Um, it's not necessarily an individual person. And you might even say, well, that's, that's not about race. That's not racist at all. But if we consider that a Hispanic or a Black woman is more likely to be obese than a white woman, or that a person of color is more likely to have diabetes or high blood pressure than a white person, then there is a racial disparity there. It is, it is old, it is as old as time in the US, um, but it definitely exists. So this is, this is not a, uh, um, uh, for lack of a better term, a black or white issue. This is definitely a, a, a blend of, of racial and socioeconomic um, and ethnicity disparities. So I actually um, have a couple of people with um, stories that I've, I've been talking to in Georgia and in New York who've shown up for testing, shown up for treatment, and didn't even get the opportunity to give full medical histories and were just saying, okay, we think you have COVID, go home. Quarantine yourself for 14 days. And these are women, primarily women of color, who have been sent back home to navigate it on their own. One particular person um, went to a healthcare system here and was sent home, was an immunocompromised person, and was sent home to quarantine and was told that they could not test her because they, could, they didn't admit her. So if we don't admit you, we can't test you. And she lives in the metropolitan Atlanta area and they told her that the closest test for her would either be Columbus, Georgia, or Athens, Georgia, or she could wait five to seven days and be tested in Fayetteville, which was closer, but she had to wait five to seven days. So hearing her story, watching her suffer, she's a close personal friend, um, it, was, it was taxing, you know, it was scary, it was touch and go. This is someone who um, is within, uh, outside of her own autoimmune disease, is very healthy. And um, then seeing more cases like this from friends and family and colleagues in New York who have been sent home to take care of themselves. And both on both sides of being healthy and then having some medical complications or pre-existing conditions, being sent home and not giving a reason why they can't get tested or why they can't stay at the hospital for treatment and then being sent back home to families with other folks who are at high risk, including children. So it's been very disheartening. And um, also talking to some healthcare providers who are having a very hard time mentally and emotionally making the hard decisions of who to treat, who not to treat, and then seeing people die on a regular basis. And when they have made you know, the pledge to do no harm and to do their best for treatment. And I think that we need to get on the front end of that by providing mental health services for our frontline workers now and not later. Um, as a millennial, I have my cell phone and my social media and, um, 
One of the stories that really stuck out to me was a post that was going around Facebook and Instagram um, and Twitter at the end of March saying, hey, if you have the, the ability to buy your groceries in 10 days, wait until um, a few days after the first of the month because people who are getting SNAP benefits and people who are getting WIC benefits, they get that at the beginning of the month and everyone else has already hoarded everything from the grocery store. Um, and that was just one of those moments where you know that to be true, but you don't think about the true human toll and the, the basic dignities or lack of dignities that we're affording to our fellow human beings. Um, never mind that the benefits are not such that you can survive off of them. Um, that's a whole other podcast. But just thinking about in this time of a true global emergency that you can't use WIC or SNAP to buy diapers and formulas, and well, formulas, yes, but wipes or basic paper products that may or may not be available. I think that in terms of taking the most vulnerable and making their lives better in an easy, immediate, tangible way, why don't we lift that restriction? That's something that we can do with the sign of a pen to make people's lives so much better. Um, I just, I don't know. It's really upsetting and it's, it's one of those moments where you have to really stop and think, oh yeah, I do have the food to last me until April 5th, so I should let other people go ahead. Um, and then if you can't make sure that you're buying the sizes of cereal boxes that are too big and don't qualify for WIC, it's something we see every day, but we don't think about. And I really hope that seeing that go around, and I hope it starts to go around in the next few days before we hit May 1st, that we can really stop and think about who we are as a society and who our neighbors are and how we can help uplift everybody because we are as a whole collective nation in this time of need. Absolutely. Um, and each of your stories highlighted, which is why it's important for us to think about even specific stories because um, those social and structural factors are fueling inequities of all sorts. And when we only view individuals and their individual health behavior choices or the outcomes for individuals, and we do that with either an ahistorical perspective um, not considering the entire context from the past um, and the re residual effects of those things on our present circumstances, as well as, again, the social and structural factors at work in any given moment, which determine um, differences and opportunities for different groups of people. Um, we, we run the risk of completely missing opportunities to see what is really happening and to develop and implement effective changes. Again, not just individual guidance, but things like policy level um, intervention, public health intervention that will very easily improve the health of entire populations. So we've seen that recently there have been various protests happening in states such as Michigan, for example, to ease stay-at-home orders. Um, in a number of different states. Uh, South Dakota as a hotspot for COVID-19, um, and that may have been in part due to uh, the governor resisting orders. 
um, or resisting implementing stay-at-home orders um, and in some states just delayed orders if they were put in place. Um, some states such as Georgia which is planning to begin to reopen slowly um, as of tomorrow. Um, for many this is a great concern, many in the public as well as public health and, and medical professionals. Uh, what is your main concern as we hear the national conversation shift to opening the country and easing those stay-at-home orders in various states? Dr. Norris, would you comment on this? Sure. Um, we recently had a plan unveiled for the state of Georgia, where I reside, um, where they have staging. And so the first things to open on Friday are hair salons, barber shops, bowling alleys, nail salons, movie theaters, and body art studios. And I'm like, how are those things essential? These are all high touch activities. And I think that um, we have to listen to science. We have to pay attention to the trends. I think that the way that things work together and the way that we are structuring our response and being able to be in a position to say it's open, but it's still your choice. We gave you stimulus money. So now you can go and pay for these things. We are going to contribute to a second round of spikes. In the last two days in Georgia, on Monday, we had 18,000 cases. By Wednesday night, we were up to over 21,000. The trend is not flattening at all. And by Friday, when we have an, an additional set of folks who have to choose to go to work, who have to be there because they need money, and if they choose not to go to work, then they don't qualify for unemployment, you're putting people between a rock and a hard place between survival and sickness. How is that helping? How is that building the economy? How is that creating equity and creating a place where families can be healthy, where communities can be healthy, where we're already seeing high concentrations of illness in black and brown populations? 75% of black and brown folks live in 16 states. And these, all 16 states are the ones at the bottom level of healthcare quality, public health structure, and healthcare access. Again, we're, we're going to contribute to creating even more disparities and digging ourselves into a hole. And so we complain about healthcare costs, but this is not going to help at all. And people will have to choose between, again, sickness and survival. It's very disheartening. It's very heartbreaking. And you can't ask people to not feed their families. You're absolutely right, Carrie. Um, I have a, a doctor friend of mine, you know, as a, as a physician in the U.S., I mean, I, I have a lot of debt, but, um, but I also have a lot, of, uh, a lot of blessings on me and my family. And a friend of mine in a similar situation, she has some debt, but, um, but is a, a, a pretty well-off, financially stable, young white woman with a white husband and two white children in a 99% white subdivision. And, uh, and she provides a lot of outpatient kind of um, uh, not necessarily essential surgeries and procedures to a majority white population. And 
she's one of the ones carrying the torch for reopening the economy, um, you know, lift all the stay at home orders, let's go back to work as usual, uh, because we all need to work and, um, and we can't do this forever. And it's only a death rate of 1%. So that that's pretty good in, in the large scheme of things, that's, that's acceptable. And it's, and it's hard because she is not the kind of person that, that listens to a lot of other opinions. But what I wanna say to her, and, and eventually we'll have to, is, um, you know, this doesn't affect you. If 1% if, if die um, because the economy opened up, because people had to go back to work because they don't have any money or food for their children, um, how this isn't your individual problem because you don't fit into that demographic <laughs> and um and this this i i kind of feel like you know like you need to keep your mouth shut you know <laughs> like, <laughs> like you need to and consider the whole experience of all the people around you and the people not in your community in order to make a decision that's right for everybody not just right for one particular family um, And I'd just like to add for a second, those workers are wearing masks when they do nails. They're wearing gloves. Tattoo artists are wearing N95 sometimes. You need those as healthcare workers and frontline workers. I don't wanna stop anybody from ever earning a living, but right now we need to focus on the health of the nation. And that's gonna be by taking those sorely needed PPE and giving them to the people who have the ability to save lives. You know, as a nation, we're only as healthy as the least insured um, worker who's face to face with sick people every day. And if that person is not getting medical care and their doctor doesn't have an N95, that's where we are as a nation. So quickly, I'd like to address that um, the workers, as far as nail salons and tattoo artists, it's great that they have the PPE. Customers would need that also. Are they going to provide that? What policies are in place about changing it? Do they have enough to change between customers? So for true protection, both sides need to be protected. Both sides need to, you can't have gloves on and get your nails done. They don't keep their gloves on the entire time. And they're doing nails and feet. Um, not at the salons that I know of. And as far as tattoo artists, you know, do you have something for the people to cover their face? Is it adequate? Do they, are they wearing it properly and correctly? Do you have gloves for the people? You still have exposures. I think there's so much that we're still learning about COVID that we're still unsure of all the different ways and mechanisms that it's sneakily being transferred. Um, so we are doing the best with what we have and what we know, but I still think there are measures of protection that have to happen on both sides. You're absolutely right. In, you know, when you think about what use does a surgical mask serve, and you're right, you know, in salons and even, you know, I expect my hairdresser to have on a mask probably, you know, most people are going to be masking and a lot of people are going to be using cloth masks. But even the surgical mask that we use in healthcare in the operating room doesn't actually prevent the person wearing it from getting the infection. It only protects the people around them from getting spit or saliva that 
gets, you know, expelled into the air. You know, some of us spit when we talk. So, um, it, it, so the mask protects another person from me giving them that germ. It, it doesn't protect me as the wearer from somebody else. So you're absolutely right, Carrie and Rachel both. I mean, we have to be wearing, we both have to be wearing that. And, uh, and a scarf or, uh, or a, a, a bandana or a cloth mask, I don't know how those do. If you can breathe through it, it probably doesn't protect the other person very much. So um, it's, it's going to be hard to control the spread when we are all out mingling in close quarters again, because we're not doing enough to prevent that. Absolutely. Um, Rachel, from the perspective of an epidemiologist, is there any sobering advice that you can give us uh, with regards to the most appropriate ways potentially to, to reopen again in light of the epidemiology? My number one advice is to listen to doctors and scientists um, and maybe the politicians who are in a previous life, a doctor or a scientist. Um, we need to do it slowly. We need to follow the math and not the economy and a timeline that somebody decides, you know, I'm done. I'm, you know, I want to go out. I want to get my nails done, but I'm not because it's not right for me. And it's certainly not right to ask a person to go to work knowing that it's unsafe. We need to, we need to wait until nationally we have numbers that are steadily, steadily going down until we have the, we also have to realize historically that there will be a resurgence and we're not even at a point where we can completely handle this surge. If we stop and we let people out tomorrow, what makes us think that in 10 days when these people start showing up in emergency rooms that the ICUs won't be full from the first part? Like we're not ready. And unfortunately, we're not going to be ready in two weeks. We're probably not gonna be ready in a month or six months. We don't have the PPE doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and everybody it takes to run a hospital they're getting sick at an alarming rate because we don't have the ability to protect them right now and we can't reopen until we can promise these doctors and nurses and everybody else that they're safe to treat these patients um you know listen to the scientists yes Listen to the scientists. <laughs> um, Carrie, what would you say from a, what would be your policy advice, your advice to policymakers? I have to completely piggyback on Rachel's answer. It's the same thing for policymakers. We appreciate the, the intent behind goodness and getting people back to work and wanting to boost the economy. But again, I ask at what cost? We have to follow the lead of CDC. We have to follow the lead of people who are on the front lines, who are releasing information every day about the challenges and what's going on. We have to look at the trends. We have to look at historical data that shows us, again, yes, you know, this can come back around. And when it comes back around, it's typically, um, it, it happens with a vengeance, unfortunately. And so in prepping that and, and looking at policymakers, they tend to have the ear of governors. 
of the president and everything else. And so I think that when we want to reach our regional state or national leaders, it starts at home with the policymakers that are um, beholden to us. So as your constituents, as the people who either voted for you or didn't, but live in your district, then those are the conversations that need to happen. Sure, we can rant and rave on social media and hope that somebody, that it goes viral and gets someone's attention, but your immediate response is to talk to the, to become an advocate in your own community and then advocate up for those folks who are your state representatives, your, your congressional representatives as well and get their attention and say, you know, science says this, you know, medicine says this, and this is what we should do. And historically, this is where we have been. So our best bet is to follow the trail of medicine and science and to ensure the safety of our people, or we're not gonna have a workforce at all. Whether or not it's someone who's, who's in a um, protected place, such as the person um, that Dinah mentioned, it still affects her. Whether or not she realizes it, it still affects her at the end of the day through taxes, through healthcare costs overall. It affects her because at some point, someone's working with somebody. So it's the six degrees of, of separation and we have to get people to care. And the caring comes in, not in all ways, you have to have something in close proximity to happen to you to get the care, but just appealing to the basic human nature of taking care of others as we would take care of ourselves. If yes. I may, um, I also think this is an important time to circle, to go full circle and think about the protests. And if we haven't seen the protests and you're listening and you haven't looked up the articles, you haven't seen video or pictures, take a moment and do that. And then really reflect on inequities. Can a person of color carry an AK-47 and open public and protest? No, absolutely not. Um, can a person of color storm a federal or city or state building with a mask? Absolutely not. And even in, you know, New England that people say is, oh, so we're progressive and we're, we're just so much more whatever um, than the South. Black and brown boys are going into the store following governor mandated law saying you must have a face covering if you're out in public and they're not being allowed in because they're suspicious. Take this full circle. We've got, we're trying, but society's not allowing us to follow the law and follow common sense. Recently, Absolutely. Recently, the governor of Georgia um, rescinded an actual law that was intended to um, keep people from wearing Ku Klux Klan hoods. But the way that it was written was written so that people could not cover their face in public in such ways that would put them in danger. And so he rescinded the law. And so now that that's been rescinded, there are people on both sides um, that are praising it, you know, or what have you. And that's in a way of protecting and saying, okay, don't think that these people are out to rob your store. The thing that they're being told is, you know, you don't have access to a mask. Don't buy up in N95 masks. Save PPE equipment for the people who need it on the front line. And so when they're covering themselves in what looks like gang bandanas, 
um, you know, in an effort or in a motion to have them not be profiled and not get killed and not get arrested um, for covering and trying to protect themselves. Will you can create the regulation or you can deregulate or what have you, but there has to be enforcement. There has to be community conversation with law enforcement and business owners to make sure that it trickles down. I'm an avid reader. I saw it because I was reading. Everybody doesn't know about it. So there need to be um, better health communication campaigns out to get information out, accurate information out. Absolutely. And that is one of the greatest challenges. Um, risk communication, um, explaining protective measures, um, an entire field <laughs> dedicated, health communications, um, dedicated to how people um, process information, fear-based messaging versus empowering people, um, lots of different aspects that are often um, overlooked. Um, even being able to message in a way that motivates people um, without causing fear that paralyzes or makes people panic, um, being able to communicate the severity of a disease or condition or, or whatever the emergency is, um, but that balance where you can say, here's the severity, but here are very clear, concrete actions that you can take in order to protect yourself. Um, and as you are updating those messages to say, to avoid some of the confusion to say, so here is what we're just reiterating that we always told you. And then here's the new information. So it doesn't seem like every time you're getting all of this additional information. No, here's what's the same. And then here is the additional piece. And to remind people that this is a fast evolving situation. So this is what it is today. This is what we know as of as of now, um, but expect that there will be additional information in the future. And that has certainly contributed to a lot of the um, confusion <laughs> or chaos that we see um, in, in some areas. Um, as our time is drawing to a close, I do want to pose one final question to each of you. How did your education as well as your experiences while you were at Agnes Scott prepare you for the social challenges um, that you are facing now in regards to practice? Um, I, uh, I was class of 98, so yay Wonder Woman. Um, we had a, a, a pretty exciting uh, group in my class and uh, we had a, a set of uh, conferences called uh, Room with a View. And it sounds like it was pretty similar to what this particular series is doing where we had someone who had a very personal experience or something about her that was very special. She, you know, might have been a family member of a student or a professor and uh, or, or someone else from the community who would come and you could decide who you wanted to go and listen to. And the important thing about that that has prepared me for what I do now is the actual the listening. Um, to hear what other people are saying, to see, you know, to listen to how they experience life. And, and that's carried me through all of what I do. I mean, I spend pretty much every encounter every day asking people to share with me secrets or, or uh, personal 
opinions and and how they're feeling and how they're doing and how they're raising their children and um I, I don't think i would have been as good at that if i hadn't gone to agnes scott if i hadn't had those experiences while i was there and of course having some classmates go look you need to stop talking and listen um i don't think there's any other situation that i've been in before agnes scott or after where someone could say that to me in a safe way and I, you know and i didn't like swear at them and cuss them out and and uh and storm off you know um so it, it was very valuable in bringing me to where i am now so for me um class of 2002 i'm going to take my cue and go ahead and say queen of hearts um it, it was twofold for me as a student and then as a faculty member there were things that you learned on both sides. And as a student, being an Africana studies major and um, being heavily involved in the science department as well, as a minor, I got the best of both worlds. So I was introduced to inequities at Agnes Scott um, through my major and also through a Coca-Cola fellowship. And it completely opened my eyes. I've been working specifically with vulnerable populations and in health disparities since that time. And the access, the um, opportunity to challenge some of the ideals that were considered standard, being able to question things and not feel like, oh, I can't ask, ask this question or I can't challenge that particular type of thought gave me the confidence to be able to continue to do that. So when I'm in rooms where I'm the only person of color, or I'm the only woman of color, or I'm the only woman, it, it, it gives me a confidence of being able to challenge status quo. It gives me the foundation and standing for what I learned there and how to be able to put together complex thoughts and get them across to audiences and also how to get the attention of the majority. That was the biggest thing sitting in classrooms where I was a minority and being able to learn how to present that side without tension, without drama, but simply saying, like Dinah said, you know, think about that, hold up for a minute, just, you know, consider this and presenting it in a way that doesn't put you on defense and doesn't um, create an enemy, but creates a person who wants to advocate with me. And create an opportunity where people begin to think a little bit harder and a little bit smarter about how they're approaching things and what they're doing. And so I completely learned that at Agnes Scott, gained a lot of confidence there and have taken that throughout um, my education and my career in doing this for 20 years. So I hats off, you know, to all of the professors and faculty. So I was class of 2009. We are the eclipses. Um, same. I came to Agnes Scott and the idea that I didn't already know everything was psh, what? I learned that I knew so little and I had the entire world in front of me and I had people in my classes with such different opinions and backgrounds and experiences. And when you're in a classroom with family, 
you're safe and able to say, I don't know, please explain. I'm sorry, you're right and I'm not. Um, which is still not something I'm always happy to entertain. I do like to be right, but I like to also acknowledge when it's my turn to, to take a step back and to learn. Um, without Agnes Scott, I wouldn't be able to have had the conversation that we had today. I learned about intersectionality and the idea that somebody's job doesn't affect their ability to get healthcare, which doesn't affect their child's education right now you can't separate those things. Those are going to be completely combined for all of eternity. Um, Agnes Scott gave me the ability to see complex things and not run away and to have hard conversations, um, to learn to be an ally. None of this would have been possible had I not had Agnes Scott. Wow. I'm sure your professors would be so pleased <laughs> to hear all of that. I hope that they um, will be a part of the listening audience who will tune into this. Um, thank you so much. As we come to a close, we're going to leave a little bit of time for final remarks. Um, and I'll let each of you make, you know, a closing statement, um, perhaps something we haven't covered yet. And then I'll um, close us out. So in my closing remarks, I just want to share um, a patient experience that I had uh, that was at the end of March. Uh, in the third week of March, our governor announced a plan to socially distance ourselves and closing non-essential businesses. Uh, the next day after that, our city bus system announced that it would stop running at 5 p.m. that day and would be closed indefinitely. Uh, the that day when I drove to work and I heard that information about the buses on the news, um, you know, I thought, oh, great, you know, there are going to be a lot of people who can't get to work or can't get to their groceries. And, um, and a lot of my patients use this the bus system and, to get to their appointments. And so I was meeting with one of those families that day. I was seeing a child, a baby with uh, her mother and three young siblings or young children in the office. The mom is an African refugee. We have a, actually a, a large uh, population of African refugees here in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And uh, she'd been in the US for a few years and she takes care of her children at home uh, while her husband works outside of the home to support the family. And the mom and I were discussing, you know, the businesses closing and how that was impacting them. And I was asking, you know, do you have the resources you need? Do you need assistance or help from me or any information from me. And I mentioned that I had heard that the buses were closing. Um, and she looked at the clock and um, I said, you know, they're supposed to close at five today. And she looked at the clock and, and I immediately realized that she was looking to see what time it was because she was riding the bus home. And, and um, you know, how is she going to get a taxi or Uber? First off, how is she going to get that? But second, with four children, four small children, um, how is she going to walk home? Um, how is she going to go anywhere on foot when she has four children, including a baby with her? Um, and, um, and I, and I have since then still think about that interaction with her. I mean, obviously I've mentioned it today too, but I'm just thinking, you know, just continually thinking about all the different ways that she and I live in such different worlds. Um, and, and, you know, and, 
I'm kind of lost sometimes in my white American upper class status. You know, I'm, I'm kind of showing my privilege here, but um, but I'm glad I asked her and I'm glad I shared that because I would not have seen that reaction. I would not have experienced that um, the shock, the the all of a sudden understanding that this means something to this family very much differently than what it means for me. And, um, and, and I'm glad I'm still listening. <laughs> so what I will say is what I've emphasized before, mental health, mental health, mental health. For frontline workers who are exhausted, who are worried about infecting their families, who are worried about their own mortality and morbidity, who are putting themselves at risk daily, you know, not waiting on the back end to say, oh, we need counselors and things to come in, but going ahead and providing those things right now, whether or not they want it tied to their job as far as social workers, the medical social workers that are already there and case managers and um, therapists and things of that nature who are hospital-based or health clinic-based, or if they want to use their employee assistance programs, those things are still in place for them to be able to use, and I need more advocates behind this particular effort. Um, there are apps and things like BetterHelp that are out there for the general public as well, and um, opportunities for the general public to go ahead and get some help. The number of people I know who have developed anxiety or whose anxiety has skyrocketed because they are worried about finances, worried about, yes, I can postpone my rent, but then once all of this is over and I owe six months, where's that money gonna come from? Because I've been home the entire time. So skyrocketing of eviction rates and things of that nature, the mental health of children who are in abusive homes, who don't have the outlet of going to school, the mental health of women who are in abusive relationships, men who are in abusive relationships and are now and sheltering in place with their abusers 24 seven. We have to think about all of these aspects and getting resources to people sooner than waiting until it's all over. Um, and, and this is my final point for those people who are pregnant, who are ingesting news and media consistently over time. Studies have shown that women who consistently watch the news and consumed information about 9-11 all the time, just left the television on, whether or not it was in the room or listening to news reports, those children who um, were born around that time, who were infants in the room or in utero have higher rates of depression and anxiety. So we need to consider balancing what we do consume for our mental health, but also for those who are around us. And we also need to get resources out as soon as possible um, for people who are sheltering in place, for folks who are the frontline workers. Um, I think I mostly want to just take a moment to say thank you to the frontline workers who do an incredible job, who often are given not enough or inadequate PPE, if any, who are working in a grocery store and need to buy paper products, but they're not allowed and they watch them all go off the shelf. Um, 
to the doctors and nurses and the teams that keep hospitals running who are doing so without um, enough PPE. Thank you, because you're keeping this country running. Um, if you are at home and you have the ability, take a moment and, and look around your community and see see what's needed. Can you can you donate to your local food bank because they have never before seen need like this? Um, can you donate some time and the ability to sew cloth masks so people are keeping their germs within their own personal space when they do have to go out? Um, actions speak louder than words. If you have the ability to take some small action, it will be perceived in a huge way from somebody else. Yes, thank you all so much. And I would just add um, that we're currently in the response phase, but I think it would be wise for all of us to ourselves and to encourage each other to start to think about um, recovery. We must make meaningful progress, measurable progress toward addressing the underlying social determinants of health and equity that have put us in the position that we are right now. Um, if we do not have these conversations we and do not address these, we will be destined to repeat this in the future. And although we were not around during the times that the foundations of these equity inequities were um, put into place, we absolutely have the tools, we have the knowledge, we have the skills, we have the expertise to effectively address and dismantle the systems that are currently in place that have created and sustained um, these inequities for generations. So I would say as we leave on a positive note, we have what it takes, um, but whether we do so or not is completely up to us collectively. So thank you so much for sharing your experience and your expertise with us. Um, we hope that this has been an engaging and enlightening conversation for our listeners. And we look forward to continuing these important conversations in the future. Subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and get new episodes as they become available.